Welcome, you're listening to the Social Care Podcast with Audrey and David, aka Baggy. Welcome to our podcast. We hope to give insight into what it means to be a social care worker and chat with people doing interesting things in the social care world. Our guest today is Rachel Fain. She's been working in the social care field for the past 18 years. She has a strong passion for social justice and the majority of her career has focused on frontline harm reduction services for individuals who are homeless and use substances. In 2019, Rachel joined the team in the SAIL project, a female specific community addiction service. She currently works as coordinator of the Davina project within SAIL, which supports women living in domestic abuse while also struggling with addiction. Rachel, we're delighted to have you on the Social Care Podcast today. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey into social care? Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so my journey started really straight away after secondary school. I kind of, I was lucky enough to have a, a quite a helpful guidance counsellor and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to, I know it sounds kind of, um, it's, it's, typical to say but I did want to try to help people in some way I wanted a kind of people face and role um, and I was interested in possibly psychology or social work and my guidance counsellor said oh have you heard of social care work and I was like no what's that and she explained it to me and I was like oh wow and I think I was probably the only one in my whole class who actually knew what it was um, and I think it's a battle that we have faced over the years of social care practitioners kind of what is social care and what's the difference between social care and social work but she was yeah. really good and she was able to explain all that to me and when I first started in college I wasn't sure exactly which um which route to go down but I knew I had a passion for uh social justice and um, I grew up in Tala and I would have seen a lot of um, injustice in the area just around drug misuse, uh, poverty, criminality, those kind of things. And life just didn't seem like it was fair. Or the world didn't seem like it was fair. So I definitely had an interest in that kind of area. So my first year placement, I did youth reach. So again, that really matched with my interest in social justice. And then my second year placement, um, I was working in an education project for people who were homeless. And there I saw that a lot of the time, the people who needed the most help in a way, the people with behavioral issues, the people who had such trauma that they couldn't control their emotions, that they'd have a temper, that they couldn't cue, they couldn't wait. And that these people were the ones who would get barred from services and that they would, wouldn't be able to get the help. So I developed a huge interest in low threshold services. And it's funny now to talk about it because everybody at the moment is talking about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practice. And for me, that's really what low threshold working is all about. It's trying to make the project that you're working on, on as accessible for people who have had traumas in their lives. Um, as possible. So I went from that into working in a low threshold environment. Some of our listeners won't know what a low threshold service is or what that means, just to tell us what that means. Yeah, so to me, low threshold um, just means making the service 
as accessible as possible. So if you think of a threshold as a step, so you're lowering the barrier of access. Um, so like I said, I do think it really matches with trauma-informed practice because we know that people who have a lot of traumas in their life find it difficult to maintain their emotions. They might find certain situations triggering and throughout their interactions might then get barred from access and services. And this is particularly true for people with addiction issues. So if someone has addiction issue, if they present to a service, the service might say, well, no, you can't come in because you're too affected. And the idea of low threshold services is to make services accessible to people, regardless of what's going on for them. So meeting them exactly where they're at, not putting up a barrier for access that you have to do X, Y, and Z before you can access our service. You knock on the door and you can come in and that's that. Um, so the first kind of low threshold service I worked in was um, a wet shelter with DePaul and um, I learned so much there. It was really, really rewarding work. So the idea of a wet shelter is a lot of the time before, before they were set up, if you were a street drinker, for example, that you'd sit on the, the streets drinking because you had an alcohol addiction. Um, if you were then trying to get into a hostel, you couldn't access because you'd present to the hostel and you would be told, oh, no, you're under the influence of alcohol. The staff here for health and safety reasons, can't admit you. And then you were having to um, sleep rough. And the uh, the idea was kind of started, DePaul Ireland opened the first wet shelter in Ireland, trying to meet that need so that people who did have drink problems, if they needed to go somewhere to get off the streets so that they didn't freeze to death in the winter, it was opened a particularly bad winter, that they would be able to access and that they could access affected by alcohol and that they could actually bring their alcohol into the service and drink their alcohol on site. And um, so it was really by its very nature, a low threshold environment. I, I absolutely loved working there. But one of the things that was problematic for me was that when you're working in residential, and I know a lot of our listeners work in residential, and I have huge, huge respect for that. What I found challenging about working in residential was that I felt there was a power imbalance because the residential service is such a basic need um, that the people who are living in that service, it's their home. They need to access that service. So if, for example, if there was an altercation in the project, I could then turn around and say, well, no, actually, you're barred from the service for a week. That's a massive power imbalance. And I found it difficult to maintain good relationships in that. So I wanted to move towards a more community setting. So I moved to um, another service, the Anna Liffey, who were kind of a community uh, drop-in project for drug users in the north inner city and I worked there for about 10 years and while I was there everybody who came to the service was very very vulnerable for lots of different reasons there was a lot of homelessness and um, a lot of mental health issues um, some physical disabilities some intellectual disabilities there's members of the traveling community and um, everybody was uh, using drink or drugs or had was in recovery from drink or drugs and mostly currently using so there was all sorts of vulnerabilities of the people who presented and one of the groups that I found myself drawn to working with in that center the way it worked was that if someone came to the project that they could kind of pick their own key worker and you'd kind of build relationships organically with the client group and organically I started building relationships a lot of the time with the women it's something in my career that I found myself kind of 
whatever I, whatever I get into, I'm always drawn to the most marginalized of that group, if that makes sense. So yeah. one of the most marginalized of that group that I was working with was women because they had physically less strength. So they were constantly vulnerable to attack and they were constantly um, having to align themselves with um, men who would take control over them and over their lives. And it was almost for them, it was like better the devil, you know, almost, you know, they were trying to keep themselves safe. If they weren't in a relationship, then they were vulnerable to attack by other men or vulnerable to abuse by other men. So they would always choose to be in relationships. And sometimes those relationships were problematic. And I could really see the vulnerability there. Another vulnerability that the women had was um, a lot of the time they'd be encouraged to sex work. And sometimes in the sex work industry, um, if they had less choice, they might have less choice around contraceptives, things like that. I know I remember having one woman who spoke to me. I knew she was sex working and I said to her, are you using contraceptives? And she said, well, no, I'm not using contraceptives because anytime I get with someone, they ask me not to. And if I say I want it, they just say they'll get it cheaper elsewhere. So I feel like I can't because I need my money to score. So those are the kind of situations. That's an, an, an added kind of layer of vulnerability. Another layer of vulnerability that I found with women, and this is a really, really difficult one, was that obviously because of the lack of contraception, a lot of them would then become pregnant. And those pregnancies because of drug issues or homelessness would then become a child protection concern and a lot of the women would then lose custody of their children leading to absolute devastation and heartbreak which would just lead them back to more chaotic drug use and then the worse their drug use got the worse the relationship with the social work department and it was a real vicious cycle that I could see happening so I've I really felt for that client group I mean I felt for everybody who came to the to the service but particularly I was quite drawn to some of those issues that I felt were unique and that's when I heard about sale I actually referred a woman that I was working with to sale and it was like all of a sudden there was a place where she could go for two hours that there was no men there so she could just be safe for two hours her abusive partner couldn't come with her So tell me about sale, like who are they? When were they set up? Who did they serve? Because some listeners out there will not know any of this. Yeah, so sale have been going for um, 27 years now. It was originally set up in the north inner city as kind of a dream of some community activists um, who saw the need for for a safe space for women who have drug addiction issues. And the first idea was that say so we're across the road from city clinic and we realized that some of the women who were on city clinic so on a methadone maintenance program and maybe had nowhere to go during the day and they'd maybe go back using and things weren't good for them they'd no kind of support or community support so the idea was not just to have a place where women could go to be safe but to have that as a tailored support where they with the focus on education and arts so that's what's really really empowering about I mean there's two things about sale that I really love one is that you know it is this female only space so it does provide this extra layer of safety but it also provides a place for women to build a community because a lot of the time coming if you've come through homeless services um, there can be a lot of arguments, say, between between women um, because they're vying for 
a small amount of resources and so a lot of the time they kind of feel like they're fighting against each other and things like that whereas being able to come to a women-only service means that they can build a community of friendships of positive friendships with other women and it's really really powerful and then the other part of that is that it was designed from the start to follow this community education approach so what I mean by community education is working with people so that they identify what would benefit them to learn to improve their own lives so they identify if they want to do yoga if they want to do poetry if they want to do drama and what's really magic about it is that a lot of the time with drug services as somebody who uses drugs when you go to a drug service all they want to talk about is your drug use and by the time you finish like you, maybe you finish your drug treatment, you can almost lose your sense of self, your sense of identity, because you only see yourself as a drug user. Whereas with the women who come to sale, we say, what are you good at? What do you like? So it's strengths-based, is it? So it's a real strengths-based approach. Yeah. And they can really find themselves in that. And then again, like I was saying that wherever I go, I always look for, for the people most marginalized. And I realized that any of the women who were coming in that had that was also as well as having addiction issues was also experiencing domestic abuse were really up against the wall you know it was really really difficult for them because what would happen was first of all a lot of services wouldn't recognize it they'd think of it as quite normal because well if you're in a relationship and there's drug use then wouldn't you expect there to be violence um, and what we're saying is actually no that violence is never okay in any relationship. So it doesn't matter if you're using drugs, if he's using drugs, if there's violence in the relationship, you're the victim of domestic violence. So you are entitled to the same support as everyone else. So if that person, if that woman is then referred to a refuge, for example, or a day program, a lot of the times what they'll meet is a barrier. So for certain, not all services, I know, a lot of domestic abuse services are working really hard. Sonas and Avenus in particular are working really, really hard on trying to make their services more accessible to women if they have addiction issues. But it's still very, very difficult to get access to refuges. And um, some of the services, once they find out you're on methadone, they won't let you into the refuge. Or if you've been unstable in your drug use, they won't let you on, won't let you into the refuge. I had a recent experience of a woman who was being discharged from residential treatment and the treatment program was six weeks and when I told them she was discharged from residential treatment they said how long was she in residential I said six weeks they said well no she has to be stable for three months before she can access our service okay. so she couldn't be more stable if you know she was on the day of release from a residential treatment but so those are the kind of barriers that we're being met with the other problem that happens is that if those women do access mainstream domestic abuse services that the addiction element is misunderstood or ignored so it's that kind of siloed approach that we see a lot in social yeah. care you yeah. know so for example one of the more common areas that we see it is dual diagnosis if someone has an addiction and a mental health issue the mental health services want to work with the mental health once the addiction is sorted by the addiction services um, and by and large it falls to the addiction service to pick up the pieces it's similar with domestic abuse whereas the domestic abuse services may be willing to work with the woman if she has addiction 
they'll work with her on the same model that they work with everyone else. So things, the dynamics of the relationship can get ignored. Things like, what if he supplies you with your drugs? Um, what if he makes you sex work? What if he's the one who injects you with your drugs? Those kind of dynamics don't get explored. The other dynamic that's often not explored is if a woman is using drugs to cope with the pain of the abuse or to manage her anxiety because of the abuse. And that's why if she goes to an addiction service and they only focus on the addiction and not the abuse, that service is falling short as well because she needs to almost look at the two issues together because they're entwined. So try to separate them is disingenuous to her experience. Um, so that's how we decided to set up the Davina project. So so it seems like there's actually three issues that are comorbid there. Um, the mental health, the addiction and the, the domestic abuse or mm. uh, domestic violence. So the Davina project, tell me about that. Yeah. So when we first set up the Davina project, we felt that, you know, as a women's project, we've been in sale. We've been working with women for 27 years and we we thought we knew about this. We thought we knew all about domestic abuse and we had a manual for um, practitioners that they could use with their groups to try to intervene. But we realized during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we started going out to their houses, because we had to we had to rejig our model of working, we had to close the center. So we decided, okay, we can't let them into the center. We'll go to their houses. And we went when we went to their houses, we were like, well, our women are putting a really brave face on some really horrific situations. And we're obviously not asking the right questions. Because if we were asking the right questions, we'd be able to identify this. So we said, we're doing something wrong and we need to learn from this. So so what were some of the things that you saw? I'm almost afraid to ask. Yeah. So the main thing was just like, say, we'd, we'd go to a house and the, the partner would answer the door and wouldn't let the woman speak to us um, or would be verbally abusive to the woman in our presence or would tell us that the woman is mentally ill and has addiction issues and talk her down to us in a kind of controlling way and that's that's kind of another issue that that can happen with women in addiction is that if their partner a lot of the time their partner is also an addiction but if their partner isn't the partner will use that against her to say well look at I can't be the problem here she's obviously the problem here I'm the good guy she's mentally ill and she's causing all this strife to the family so these are the kind of things we were seeing and we decided that we needed to find some way to better intervene but also to better assess so that we knew what was going on for our women everything we do in sale and this has kind of followed suit as well has a real focus on peers so what, what we mean by peers is women who've had that lived experience, feeding back to help other women and also feeding back to help our knowledge as professionals and practitioners. So what we decided to do was that we'd have, we'd set up a program where we would have one worker and five peers. So five women with lived experience of both addiction and domestic abuse and that they would work together as a team to highlight the issues and develop tools for practitioners throughout Ireland. And um, so at the moment, what we've done is we've developed a 12 week psychoeducational program that anybody can run 
once we publish it, <laughs> anybody can run it in so any. It's, it's still in draft, is it? It's still in draft at the moment. And the idea, and what's so wonderful, is that 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 manual, that psychoeducational program, has been written by survivors. It was written by the actual women who've lived through that experience, and said these are the things that would help women learn so learn about your mental health learn about your boundaries learn about the types of abuse the signs of abuse and um, positive relationships consent all of those things they've identified that this would this would have helped them in their journey and now they're giving back they feel like they this can then help other people and um, so we're running it as a pilot at the moment and it's going it's really really powerful um because women particularly because it's run in a group format. I'm also doing it in one-to-ones, but it's particularly powerful in a group format because they're for the first time with a group of women who've all had a similar experience to themselves. And it's it's that real lift of shame that no matter how many one-to-ones or counseling sessions you do with someone, being able to meet someone else who's been through it, that can give you that lift of shame because that's what really holds a lot of the women back. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing at the moment and that's why I'm really excited to be talking to you guys on the 28th of November because we're just in the middle of the 16 days of action okay tell us about that so the 16 days of action yes yeah, so it's a campaign that's run by the UN each year and um, which focuses on 16 days of activism to end gender-based violence so it starts on the 25th of November which is a European day to end violence and ends on the 10th of December, which is International Human Rights Day. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you guys on the 28th, because like I said, this is part of our actions for the 16 Days of Action. One of our actions this year is to try to raise awareness of the difficulties faced by this very specific group. And I know that there's hundreds of women suffering with this issue at the moment. Um, and women who have an experience of addiction issues are just one small cohort of those women, but they have unique needs and a unique experience that needs to be addressed rather than addressing it in a siloed approach where you have to go one place for your addiction one place for your domestic abuse to be addressed in a holistic way um where you can go for help because it's hard enough to ask for help and then if you ask for help for someone to go well this isn't the right door for you so it's that idea of no wrong door before we go on i'd like to tell you about the sponsor of this podcast series trust social care consultancy I am owner and consultant of this independent business for the support and development of those working in social care. I help social care workers by providing professional supervision and mentoring. I also provide regular group supervision to teams working in social care. If you want to find out more, you'll find me on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit trustconsultancy.ie. Now back to the podcast. So I'm interested in the practicalities of this, okay? So the people that you're working with, I, I assume that you have a team of social care workers or a team of workers working with these people. Is it a key working system? How often do they come to see you? How do you kind of see progress or how do you measure progress with them? Yeah, so it's a key working system. Um, at the moment, I actually don't have a team. It's just me, Um, which is, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> um, I suppose the, the issue is 
we don't have any mainstream funding at the moment. We're funded by a philanthropic organization. One of the first things I wanted to do when I uh, started was I wanted to try to estimate how much of a problem this was. Because like I said, in sale, we thought it was, you know, a lot of our, our women. And then when we started, we realized it was more like 90% of our women. And I was thinking to myself, if it's 90% in our service, I wonder what it is in other services. Um, and I, I looked for statistics and there was none available. Nobody's asked this question before. Um, so I teamed up with a team of researchers in uh, Trinity College School of Midwif Midwifery. And they did an estimate based on the population of women who use drugs in Ireland. And they estimated that at a minimum in 2020, there was 11,000 women who experienced this issue. At a lifetime prevalence, it was 48,000. But there was a study done by uh, Dermody, um, I think it was in 2018, of a small group of women on probation. And that study found a much higher percentage. That the Sorry, our stats were based on a 3% marker for the, for the current prevalence and a 15% marker for the lifetime prevalence. Whereas um, the study that Dermody found, it was, I think it was 92% of women on probation had had a current or recent experience of domestic abuse. So if we applied the, the same at 92% marker, we're looking at more like 239,000 women who experience both issues of domestic abuse and addiction in their life. Over the course of their life. Over the course of their life, yeah. And and what about location? Like, how are you reaching these people? Because yeah. obviously you're, you're located in one area, but are people coming to you from further afield or can you only deal with the people in your local area? At the moment, we don't have the capacity, unfortunately. And I suppose that's why we're looking at rolling out tools rolling out resources for other professionals because we obviously can't work with 239,000 women and um, there's just no way that that's going to happen we're quite open to taking referrals from the wider Dublin area so there's enough women within sale who were already accessing the sales services for me to fill my books in terms of how many women I can actually support and um, now that said we did still we set up the project in May 2021, and since January, there's been 30 new referrals. So since January this year, you've this year there's been 30 new referrals. New referrals. So we okay. had we had about 20 last year and about 30 this year, and we're working with those women on a on a key working system. So there's two there's two things we're doing. One is that we have we provide one to ones for those women. So as part of those one to ones, we very similar to key working where they get to identify what issues it is that they want to to focus on so it might be the addiction one week it might be domestic abuse next week and with those women they can identify them if they want to get extra supports from say on Garda Shikana from the court systems we can help them go about getting barring orders or safety orders we can inform them of what their rights are a huge part of it is kind of education around domestic abuse and not in the traditional sense it's more what does domestic abuse look like if you're in a relationship where there's alcohol and drug use because as I was saying before there's certain things that are just slightly different so just a lot of talk about manipulation and what does manipulation look like those kind of things and then secondary to that then we run a group which is running the pilot program as I described earlier the psychoeducation program and uh, so that's any of the women who come in for one-to-ones we've offered them 
if they want to complete this course. It's a 16 week course where they learn all about um, how abuse affects them, their families, what abuse looks like, how to set boundaries, what are the red flags, what's consent, all those kind of different things. And how is that course going? Are, are people sticking it out or are they staying yeah, with it? They are actually. We were really worried because I think sometimes with particularly, we, look, we are an addiction service. And one of the things that we were very concerned about, we were like, well, if we bring all this up, are we going to be re-traumatizing them? And then are they going to go off using and overdose and all sorts of bad things happening? And we were very nervous about it. We were like, maybe maybe it's pushing it too far but what we did was we just decided we said look we're gonna let you guys take the lead so and then if we notice that too many people are getting upset what we'll do is we'll take a break and we'll do a mindfulness exercise or a grounding exercise and then get back to the to the course and one of the things that we're hoping when when we do roll out the course we don't want it to just be we'll put it up online and anybody can then do it we want to actually invite professionals that plan to run the course in to do workshops and the idea that we have is for that to be like similar to assist training where you'd have two from one organization two from another organization and that way you get that and co-working piece as well and that those workshops will actually be facilitated rather than being facilitated by myself they'll actually be facilitated by the women who we've been working with the women with the lived experience and they can share their experiences and share their knowledge on how to best work with this client group but so far the course is going really really well and um, the dropout rate has been really low com- in comparison to other groups it's really powerful you know i mean i meet with the so my team like i said i don't have any other professional social care workers i have a team of six volunteers of women who have lived experience and at the moment they're not doing any casework themselves they're not at that level yet and um, but what they are doing is working with me to develop this course so I meet with them two to three times a week to do that piece of work but then they're also involved strongly in an advocacy sense it was amazing because like a few last month we went to meet the minister for justice Helen McEntee in the department of justice and it was so powerful for those women most of those women had been in prison themselves and have they all been in abusive relationships all been in addiction and for them to stand in the department of justice and meet with the minister for justice was just really powerful experience for them. It was so self-affirming for them. It was wonderful. And it's a lot of a lot of people talk about, you know, inclusivity and collaboration and stuff like that. And we make sure that they're at every every meeting that we have, they're at it. It's it's very much a message of hope, isn't it? If somebody's yeah. in that situation that there is hope, there is a way out, you know, and there's help out there for people. In some ways they're self-healing. They're healing by helping others but they're also inspiring others as well so once they move on we hope that they move on to college and study youth and community and study social care and those kind of fields um, and then that new women who've had their that experience who are getting away from those relationships will then come and take their place that's going to be a role and model that we use yeah I was just going to say I've been listening intently and um, I understand the way everything is geared towards women after speaking with Sinead from Sunnis in a previous interview this has shown that even the subjects that were broaching there's different levels I suppose you say it's like an onion when she was talking about the the general view of what domestic violence was 
and she was speaking about herself, her own organization and then women's aid. And now you're coming along and it's kind of um, a deeper aspect to stuff that's going on that people don't really name and, and it needs very specific skills. And it, it's really great to see someone digging more into it. You know, I, I say I walked around the, the inner city myself and um, I know it's a very densely populated area. So maybe there's a lot more that could use your services than are making themselves known. Yeah, definitely. And I'd I'd love for anybody listening today who has a client who they think that could use our service, please get in touch. Project and the project that I'm working with is the Davina project. So that's the specific for women in abuse and who are also suffering with addiction issues. Um, I think one of the challenges that I've found when I was, you know, I've been this worker where you're working in low threshold services and there's just chaos everywhere, you know, and things are really, really bad for people. Sometimes you do see abuse as just normal almost it's run of the mill you almost get desensitized to it and that's really understandable but what can happen and one of the things that the women who I'm working with the peers have shared with me is that when professionals in their life haven't intervened in what they were seeing they felt as though that that behavior it was reinforcing that the behavior that they were experiencing in their lives was okay so to have somebody turn around and say, gee, I'm a bit worried about you. That must be really tough on you. That actually gives them a sense that actually I'm allowed to say that this isn't okay. And that's the big thing that a lot of the women who I've worked with have said that they've learned. And that's been the most powerful thing that when they're saying that they've learned that actually it's not okay for someone. One of the girls said it at the, the launch of her paper. She said, I learned that it's not okay for someone to break my finger. And you would think that that's, a given but she didn't know that she didn't she thought a broken finger was nothing and then she learned that actually if someone breaks my finger that's a big deal and another girl said and I that she learned that she has the right to her body and that she has the right for her body to be treated well and I was like that's and again it seems so simple but if you have a lot of professionals in your life and there's no professionals and there's no society turning around and saying that's not okay how are you going to know that that's not okay? You don't really see as many women, um, I suppose, on the streets, women in addiction, as you do men. Like, like when I think of walking down O'Connell Street or walking in Dublin, um, you, you, it's very vis. The men are very visible, but yeah. the women not so much. Yeah, I think there may be less women actually in addiction, or maybe the addiction for women takes a different face. So maybe is more towards alcohol there's certainly less women access a different addiction services and part of that is because women are very scared to access addiction services in case well for one thing judgment from neighbors and society peers they know if you go to an addiction service that you have an addiction issue and then there'll be severe judgment and much harsher judgment i'd say for women than men in the same way as you know there's a lot more parenting responsibility falls falls to women and then you have this kind of double-edged sword where you think oh if, if a woman is using then oh she's a bad mother but you never hear someone say oh if a man's using he's a bad father 
but it's it always kind of falls back to the woman so there is that fear of judgment and access and services and then there's the the other issue would be that the women if they do access services there is a risk that um professionals will need to make a Tusla referral and that is their biggest fear unfortunately it means that they delay seeking help until things are desperate until almost it's any intervention is almost meaningless at that point because it's so bad and I think that's one of again an additional barrier faced by women so I'm hoping that if we can kind of raise awareness over these 16 days of action about the plight of these specific women that not only any other social care workers out there who's listening today might actually think god actually the last time i seen her she did have a black eye and i didn't actually ask her about it Do you know those things really yeah. simple things like that that we're maybe not questioning ourselves about as professionals um, and it's it's just it's just human nature that we we get used to what we're seeing and it becomes normalized and then we've we don't challenge yeah definitely the desensitization can creep in there yeah. as well like because especially social care workers may have so much to do in a particular area with people and so many clients that it might be just something that they miss but I think you being on here today is the first step in raising awareness of the Davina project raising awareness of this domestic violence and drug abuse issue in women and you know hopefully social care workers listening to this will have a much greater appreciation for the myriad of issues and the complexity that faces these women and also an appreciation for the service for sale for the Davina project for yourself and everything that you guys do I was just going to ask about your um your twins with a group in Tanzania I thought that was very interesting yeah, um, that's quite a new development. So uh, we've identified a women's project in Tanzania um, that do quite similar work to ourselves, but obviously have extra financial difficulties uh, than we would have. And what's really wonderful about it is that we're working with the women in the community education, our community employment scheme to educate them about what the plight of the women in Tanzania is and through that then they're going to help raise money and raise resources for um that project so again they'll be healing through through giving and through looking outside of themselves and having empathy and and community and a communal spirit with these women from the other side yeah. of the world it's wow. yeah it's very interesting Rachel, the amount of issues that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, there's a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of maybe transference or vicarious trauma. So how do you protect yourself against all that negativity and against all those horrific things that you see and hear on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, to, to be honest, my uh, there's all this talk, you know, about self-care, this, self-care, that. And I'm not one for kind of, you know, meditation and yoga and all of those kind of things what I found really works for me is engagement with the arts creativity and when I first started working in social care I think I I was really experiencing a lot of that sense of injustice and and trauma and I felt almost like well what right do I have to be happy when everybody else is so miserable and I was all consumed and the working week was just so dark that was my in in certain ways I would you know I'd go to work and work was just dark like it was 
bleak. This was when I was working in the wet shelter. I was surrounded by people who were dying and really unwell. And it was just really, really bleak. Um, and then I would go home and then um, I would rest by watching TV and I would go to work. So I just felt I didn't have any respite. And it just so happened that in my personal life, a few friends moved away and I needed to find some more friends. So I had a little look online, what was going around. And I found a drama group and I joined the drama group. And for the first time, I was able to really laugh and not feel guilty because when you're in drama, you're not really yourself. You're this kind of silly, clowning, other type of person. So when I was in drama, I felt like I could just be silly and I could have a laugh because I wasn't myself. So I didn't have to feel guilty about having fun and having a nice time. So, and eventually I learned that it didn't help anyone for me to be miserable at the end of the day. So that it actually made me find permission for myself. And what was so wonderful um, about coming to sale was I actually said, okay, I can run a drama group here uh, because the women were interested in drama. So I can, so I actually run a drama group in sale. So I have this kind of two hours out of my working week where I go into sale and run this course. And it's a really amazing kind of inspirational that the impact it has on the women and their self-esteem and their sense of self-efficacy and everything is, and their creativity. They're absolutely brilliant it's really inspiring work and it really kind of sustains me. So I do that as part of my working week, but then I also keep up drama as a hobby. So I, I meet with my drama group myself once a week. And then if we're doing a show, we meet four or five times a week. Wow. Um, and it's a huge part of my life now. And it's really what keeps me going. The other thing that I found helpful to keep me going, and in some ways this seems a bit weird, is I actually do voluntary work. Um, so I work with a project called uh, La Kayla. And the reason why I chose that is because it was working with young people. So I felt like it was a little bit different um, to my work with, with adults. So I work, my working week is with adults, um, whereas this is working with young people. And I also feel because it's doing it voluntary, you kind of feel like it's almost on your own terms in a way. You can't say, oh, like none of us are in this this job for the money anyway, but there's something really special about doing voluntary work and that's also something that I find very sustaining it kind of keeps my passion for social care and social justice alive almost being able to spend a couple of hours a week and doing it voluntary keeps me going as well so that's yeah. the two ways I have I have Brilliant. an artistic hobby both in work and out of work and then I do some voluntary work outside of work as well so for people who out there who aren't into yoga or meditation or swimming in the nip in the sea you can also do other things <laughs> or running 10 miles yourself. a day oh. <laughs> <laughs> or eating kale whatever it is for yeah, you yeah yeah no judgments on anybody no judgment who likes no judgment. them <laughs> no but that's pretty, and it just goes to show that that self-care is more than just bubble baths and yoga so we just love to thank you so much for being on today. And we hope that the rollout of your course goes really well. Thank you so much. Bye now. Lovely Bye. to talk to you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please join us next week as Baggy and I reflect on our 12 guests and our journey into podcasting. See you then.